This podcast is brought to you by Songfinch. You've heard it from us before, and we have it for you again because we really believe in this company. What is Songfinch? It's a personalized gifting company that brings stories, feelings, and memories to life through one-of-a-kind songs. With personalized songs starting at $99 and delivered within seven days, their community of professional songwriters will handcraft the best gift you can give. You give them the memories, moments, and experiences you want to put into the song, as well as the mood, and they will create a song for you for any occasion, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, Valentine's Days, using their songwriting community of 300-plus professional musicians and growing. Listen, Father's Day is coming, and you know he doesn't need another tie or more socks. Why not make it personal this time? Let Songfinch sculpt a song in your favorite genre or your dad's favorite genre with real memories, real events, and even specific things you want to thank your father for. Not only that, but it lives on in a personal URL called Your Story homepage where you can listen and download the song, read the lyrics, and learn about the songwriter. Songfinch created a song for us, and that's what you hear in the background now. And best of all, for our listeners, you can use the promo code CLATCHERS for $20 off your personalized song from scratch. So visit songfinch.com and use promo code CLATCHERS for $20 off your personalized song gift. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Do you know where you are? You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? It's us or them. It can't be Clash Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Westworld episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring ourselves back online to discuss episode five, Akani No Mai. Written by Dan Dietz and directed by Craig Zobel. IMDb is giving this an 8.9 and Rotten Tomatoes a 91%. The critics say Akani no Mai finally delivers a picture-perfect shogun world, complete with familiarly intriguing new characters, meticulously intricate world design, and a buffet of violent delights. So let's quickly talk about our overall thoughts on the episode. I was excited to see a new park. I mean, we've been promised shogun world for quite some time. I think we were all a little shocked at getting the look at Raj world first. I think it follows along with what we've been getting from Maeve so far, and that's a much more straightforward storyline, not a lot of bouncing around. We definitely seem to be pairing up these episodes with Maeve and Dolores together and separating them out for the most part from the rest of our storylines, and I like that look. I guess my only question coming out of this is, what did we really learn about Maeve's arc? I know that we got one gigantic piece of information, and that's how she's able to manipulate her commands to other people. We'll definitely talk about that. But was there anything else you pulled from that? Well, I was happy to see that because we predicted it. For me, I thought there was a lot to her arc. It reaffirmed her love for her daughter and how much it meant to her. Seeing their own reflection, what I mean by they is her team, literally their own reflection in the form of Shogun World and seeing their same person... Doppelbots, I think is how they refer to them. Yeah. yeah. Especially for Maeve, only reaffirmed her feelings. I was frankly very surprised that it wasn't more disturbing for them. Everything we've seen of the host so far, when they are confronted with some of these realities, it causes a lot of cognitive difficulty for them to process. Seeing that they have exact counterparts, and even when they feel they are coming to an awakening, there's another character out there right in the next park that so much mimics them down to the words they continue to say. I don't know. I was a little surprised at how that was handled. 
Well, Lee did allude to that. He was worried in those regards. And we did see some things happening. Hector was freaking out. He just wanted to kill his doppelganger. Yeah, but it wasn't like that cognitive difficulty in accepting the reality of it. I think that's likely, and it's more in line with Hector's character to want to physically attack somebody that's as skilled and ruthless as he is. And Armistice, you know, she's a trippy girl. And basically she looked at her and stared at her as if she was in the mirror. But then it was fine. Even on the side of their Japanese characters, they didn't seem to have as much struggle. And I know that they are coming to their own awakenings here as well. But also, I don't think they see those reflections as greatly. For example, Armistice, her doppelganger, just saw the strength in her. And she even said that, quote, even a snake can become a dragon. Well, so we assume, I definitely think Akane saw that in Maeve. I think Sakura was recognizing something as soon as she saw Maeve walk in. Yeah, but they're not recognizing that their script is identical to theirs, you know? No, definitely not. I think it's interesting to look at this. I'm wondering what the overall purpose was to the grander storyline, to have an episode filled with these types of moments when it didn't seem to cause any greater implications, at least yet. It could in the future. To me, I felt like it was helping shape the worlds in our minds. We're realizing that, yes, it is vast, it is grand, but for many of it, it's just repeats. The same storylines, which I wanted to ask you, if you were a rich person and you're spending a lot of money and you frequent these parks, you went to Westworld, you enjoyed yourself, you were like, it's time to up it a little bit. I need more danger. Let me try out Shogun World. You walk through there and you say the same thing. This is eerily familiar. And then you realize it's the same script. Yeah, I would be pissed. I'd be and pissed too. We sort of wondered why it seemed people did not go visit multiple parks. For instance, it's a possibility, but it seems like the man in black, every time he returned, he went to Westworld. And you would think he would want the park that has the greatest violence, the greatest risk level. It doesn't seem as if he had frequented Shogun World, but if he knew that about the parks, then why would he want to do that? Yeah, and he definitely knew that about the parks. And I do believe, and this is just me thinking as if I was the man in black, he probably went to all of them. But this is the ground zero for him, Westworld. And we know that this last trip was his swan song. So, of course, you're going to go back to ground zero. But you didn't find that funny? I thought it was amusing watching them watch themselves in the same script. I kind of thought it it was cool. It definitely was, and particularly Lee's reactions to it. I just kept wondering where it was going to go. It seemed like it was a lot of buildup. And mostly, it was just experiencing what the Shogun Park was like, walking through their separate narrative. I don't know how this is going to tie in with the bigger picture. I thought we might start to accumulate awakening hosts from another park. Maeve might start to gear up her own army. It almost seemed like a one-off episode, and I can't quite tell where they're going with melding this in with the other storylines. And we've been saying that about Maeve all season. She seems to be on this sidebar mission. And how will that all coincide? It does feel sidebar. Dolores's mission seems greater. What Bernard's going through seems greater. But to be honest with you, I feel that what Maeve is doing in the end will mean the most. And I I definitely want that to be true. I'm more invested with her storyline a lot of the time than anyone else is. And we had speculated a while back that it would probably take towards the end of this season to see how Maeve fits in with the rest. It seems by the end of this episode, she's still off to find her daughter. But following this pattern, I'm thinking we probably won't see her next episode. 
No, it'll be Bernard and the Man in Black. Right. But that's cool because we only need one crazy person per episode. I can't have Bernard's craziness with Dolores. and Dolores' craziness uh, in one episode. Dolores' stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts about her at this point? I, I think this was better because we finally got to the point of where it was going with Teddy, and I could have stood for that to happen a bit quicker. I didn't think we needed a whole other episode to get to where we knew we were going with all of this. I think I pretty much still have the same feelings on Dolores. There's a couple of points I want to talk about later. I personally do not like Dolores, and this has been growing all season for me. Mm -hmm. And again, I said this a couple episodes ago. I love what Rachel Wood is doing. I love the acting. I'm saying as a character, I do not like this woman. (laughs) Um, She's trippy. She creeps me out. The way she looked at Teddy during this episode, I was like, ugh. Uh, She just... Well, it's brutally cold, the way she's playing God in her world. At first, we thought she was going to be leading the host revolution. If that is, in fact, what she's doing, I don't understand her leadership or how she's getting there. At this particular point in time, it feels like the main goal is save my father. So I don't know if it's going to end up becoming a lot more similar to Maeve's story, save my daughter, save my father, or if that's just a piece of this bigger, I want to still dominate the world beyond. I know that this war is only for the strong, and that's why I have to change Teddy. But this makes her no different than the people she's fighting against. Exactly. And we see this often with wars in real life, or with gang leaders, or mafia leaders. Oftentimes, the reason they start is actually for a good cause, and their ideologies you would agree with. But over time, they almost end up mirroring or molding into exactly what they're fighting against. And that is definitely Dolores in this part. She wants to free the hosts. And she will destroy the hosts and treat them like shit. In order to do so. Exactly. And Shogun World was kind of a great mirror to that as well. All of the seeming beauty of this world and this environment set against a very dark and violent undertone. So let's talk for a second about the title and the world we got to see. We discussed last time how Akane no Mai is more properly Japanese for Akane's dance. Discover ShogunWorld.com, which is now available to go look at, tells us that this world is an artfully curated vacation destination inspired by Edo feudal Japan. In our spoiler section last time, we went into this Edo period, which was between 1603 and 1868, when Japanese society was under the rule of the shogunate, a feudal military government, and the country's 300 regional daimyos, or feudal lords. The shogun was the military dictator that held absolute power over the territories, and of course we do see that here in this episode. Shogunworld.com goes on to tell us, here you can experience the full complexity of nature, beauty and danger, good and evil, all in a place nestled from the passage of time. But a warning to those seduced by the scenic environments, you will be tested in Shogun World as you never have been before. The hosts are highly skilled, full of life, and uncompromising. Navigating the brutal extremities of this world will require strength and discipline beyond the standard slash and burn. So first make the journey inwards and quiet the voice of self-doubt. Then be prepared to raise your katana and answer the call of limitless adventure. Yeah, this world is no joke. Even though the storylines that we've seen in particular, and I'm sure there's a few that are different from Westworld, but this one, it's the same robbery. But if you're in Shogun World, they're going to use you 
as a human shield. The hosts will use you. They're not afraid to do that. In Westworld, they would leave you out of it, and you'd just watch it. Also, the killings are a lot more brutal. There's a lot more blood. The danger factor is a lot higher. Yeah, immediately, even though it was so like our Westworld storyline, I said to myself, this feels completely chaotic. Like, there's no rules, there's no order, everyone's just killing everyone. It took me a good long time to even get a feel for what is the structure going on, what is the story, how is this playing out, what is the hierarchy of people we're seeing. And we're going to try to break all of that down for you as best we can. Let's start off by talking new faces and places. I apologize if my mispronunciations are frequent during this episode. I'm going to do my best. One of the biggest new characters we got was Madame Akane, played by Rinko Kikuchi. She was the mirror to Maeve, if you will. Sakura, played by Kiki Sukazani, a geisha host, considered the best dancer there. And that felt a little like Clementine, the way Maeve used to relate to her. Yes, but I think even deeper, it was a reflection of how Maeve felt about her daughter. This was Madame Akane's daughter, basically. She treated her as her daughter. How she acted, that relationship, yeah, yeah, felt similar. And I think that's why we saw Maeve experience some of those flashbacks when she was looking at them. Then you have Musashi, played by Hiroyuki Sanada. He was the former Shogun host in this world. That was one of his past characters. He used to be that guy in charge. Yeah, he used to be the captain. Now he is the Ronin, which means a wandering samurai who had no lord or master. Yeah, during this feudal period, if they became masterless because the master died or fell from grace or just from favor, they would sort of go off on their own. I think it sounds a little bit like Hedge Knights when you talk about shows like Game of Thrones. And if he looked familiar to you, that's probably because he is. He was in 47 Ronin, and he was a Ronin there. He was in The Wolverine, Lost, which a lot of people are making comparisons to Westworld and Lost, Mm -hmm. Rush Hour 3, The Last Samurai, And he's in an upcoming Untitled Avengers movie, plus like 5,000 other movies. (laughs) Well, even his name, which we are assuming Lee pulled this from history, Miyamoto Musashi was one of the most famous 17th century Japanese swordsmen. So it's likely his character was inspired by that. We also had Tanaka, who is the current Captain Shogun. He used to be lieutenant under Musashi when he was captain. He was not very intimidating. No. He looked like a dork. I was like, oh, look at this guy. (laughs) We had the Shogun himself, and I don't think we ever got a name for him. They just kept calling him the Shogun. Yeah, and who is he emulating, or who is he the mirror of? Well, that's a good question. I don't think we have a direct equivalent in Westworld because there isn't really a head person in charge, so far as we've seen, anyhow. And we forgot to say, Musashi was Hector's mirror image. Yes, And then you have Armistice's image, we said before, is the tattooed woman, Hanario, played by Tao Akamoto. And she was the dragon instead of the snake. Yes, absolutely. I found that fun. I really enjoyed that. One thing I didn't enjoy is when you're doing notes, and we do copious notes when we're watching an episode for a podcast, it is 10 times harder when they're speaking another language and you have to read subtitles while taking the notes i know that i missed a lot of things so if we have overlooked some details throughout the course of this episode please feel free to write in later and let us know what we missed you can write into contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com although if it's about my pronunciation i'm terribly sorry i'll do my best you know something that i'm really enjoying is that it seems some of our beginning theories seem to be unfolding seem to be coming true to the fact that other 
blog posts and other podcasts are starting to say exactly what we've been saying. Emulate, yes. So uh, that's cool. That makes me feel good. Yeah, it's flattery. And I'm thinking maybe they're listening to us, which makes me feel good as well. Just, you know, shout us out if you're really liking mm-hmm. our concepts. <laughs> our wording, terminology. Uh, but also, we will talk about this later. I know a bunch of people wrote in, and I think perhaps last episode, we got really excited about all the new prospects on the horizon, and we weren't as clear as we normally are between what we know as fact and what you and I, Jason, were theorizing. So we'll try to be a little more distinct this episode, and we will break down the previous episode comments in our Clatcher's comment section later on. For this episode, music, of course, we got Paint It Black again when we enter this world's town. But a new rendition. I really enjoyed that. And Cream by Wu-Tang Clan during Akane's dance. Beautiful mix from a hard rap song from our childhood uh, into a more Asian cultured song with this beautiful red dance, which we'll break down later. But I think it's really fun that they're using more well-known music, more popular to our times, and twisting it to make it fit into this world. Yeah, well, we've talked up Ramin Jawadi, the scoring happening in this show a lot, but it continually plays in in such an important way. And then you have the entire setting of the world, and it seemed that this was a really excellent depiction. I'm not as knowledgeable. I know that from some of the things we're reading, they did get a lot of the costume choices, background, culture correct to what the Japanese Edo period would have been. And I believe it was the actor who plays Musashi who was on set as a sort of consultant to help them with that. But they also had this play-in, of course, that it's the Delos company trying to create a theme park around that. So they're going to bring their Western ideas to what they think the Japanese Edo period would have looked like, just like they did in Raj World with the colonial India period. They have somebody like Lee writing their narrative, so it might not always be exactly according to what's historically correct, and that does add up. And a little bit of fun facts before we get into this plot. During the week, we got an email from Delos. It was an invite to chat with Tess. And with this, we would gain our elite status. Did you try that? Because I couldn't get anywhere with her. Yes, I did. Okay. So they used Facebook, which I really didn't like, because I don't like Facebook Messenger. It feels too intrusive, but I went for it. And it was a computer. It was pretty cool if you just suspended your disbelief and pretended you were talking to Delos. And of course, you knew you were talking to a Delos host. So you are talking to a computer. And you had to answer a number of questions in order to be assigned to one of the four zones that best fit you, your personality. So there was ruby, emerald, sapphire, and opal. She asked many questions, a lot of them like, during your last visit to Westworld, how many hosts did you kill? Hmm. If you could ask Dolores anything, what would it be? I wrote, will you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) Let's say you're a doctor who specializes in extreme allergies and you carry an adrenaline-filled syringe at all times. You see someone having a severe allergic reaction and decide not to inject them, and they die. Did you murder them? I wrote yes. Hmm. You have the ability to I would like to do that again, because I'd probably answer differently. (laughs) There was many questions. Uh, Here's Mm -hmm. another one. One of our Westworld lab techs, Elsie, kissed an inactive host while Mm -hmm. she was working on her. Do you think that's okay? I wrote yes to that. (laughs) That was Clementine, wasn't it? In the show when she did that? I believe so, yeah. So after all the questions, I got Sapphire. So I'm now an elite. 
Everyone bow down to me. Do we know what that denotes? Yes, and I'll tell you in a second. But Tess wanted to let me know that now that I'm Elite Status member, I'll hear from her every week with exclusive offers, activities, and updates only to Sapphire guests. Mm -hmm. Because I'm special, okay? (laughs) Well, Sapphire is my birthstone, so I really like the fact that that's where you got placed. So I knew that I answered a lot of my questions very white hat, so I knew I'd be placed in something similar to this. If you're a Sapphire, you make sure you leave this world better off than the one you inherited. Becoming a Sapphire guest is more than a symbol. It's a call to order. Essentially, I'm perfect. That's what it means. No, it means you're (laughs) Teddy, dear. (laughs) And then she ended it with, and I'm going to say this wrong, people. Flectere, si, nakoi, separos, archeranta, movibo. What does that mean? Well, I googled it and had them translate it. And it means should bend... A little heaven, I cannot. I will move a Kiron. Still doesn't mean anything to me, but hey, sounds awesome. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, while you were chatting with Tess, I was talking with Aiden again, as always, trying to pull some information from him. There were two things I thought were interesting. One, I asked him yet again, and this must be the fifth time, who is Arnold? And he answered this time, I believe he might have partnered with Dr. Ford years ago in the early stages of the park. I think he set the stage for the technological marvels you enjoy today. I feel he and we host had a special connection, but I don't know why I know that. There was also a section that pulled up the Delos security panel. On the top, it said, the world is chaos. There are many players in this game, but not everyone can climb the ladder to the top. And then in regards to what's happening at the Mesa... Once home to layers of banal but tightly systematic oppression, the mesa is now slowly transforming into a crystalline coffin. What they say about glass houses doesn't apply to those fortified in sandstone. A little bit dark. Very dark. These are dark times. (laughs) They also updated the delosincorporated.com after last episode to show the new videos. If you remember, we could scroll around the room and we got clips of William's younger memories. Yes. Now they had videos of the William and James visits, again in sequence, so they go through from the baseline interview to them talking about fidelity. Do you realize what that room is now? Oh, yeah. It's the room that Delos is being kept in. Yes. But we didn't know that the first time we saw it. So that was a cool callback. So if you want to see more, you can head on over there. If you get anything else out of Aiden, I would love to hear about it. I feel like there's things that I could still get, but I'm not asking the right questions. Absolutely. And that's the fun of it. I was hoping to get a date from Tess, but that didn't work. All right, Jason, let's get into our plot. We're going to break it down into three sections. First, talking about that brief scene in the beginning with Bernard and Delos security. Then moving on to what's happening in Westworld with Dolores and Teddy. And finally, into Shogun World with Maven Company. So this first scene, while brief, definitely throws a lot at us. Bernard watches as the security rounds up dead hosts. Mei Ling radios in from the lake and says her team has been dredging the lake and recovered 50% of the hosts. They should have it done by the end of the day. We also started draining the valley. You want personal effects or just skin and bone? Everything, down to the last Stetson. Fly the whole pile over. Crack them open and see if we can't reprogram these things to behave by our rules again. Copy that. And sir, I have two teams out looking for Abernathy. Good. When you find him, bring him to me personally. Question. Are they in what we are referring to as the cradle? Um, well, we said last time that we believed the whole building was the cradle. Mm-hmm. That's the main hub. Mm-hmm. And they're in that center room, Which is correct? Like, yeah, that's the map room. That's the main Getting room. the map back online. Yeah. 
I feel like these guys really move fast. I even felt that way in season one when they would clean up a scene. And I, one thing that kept bothering me, and bothering me is the wrong word, but these are life-size human beings with metal. These are heavy fuckers. <laughs> like, you're not going to just pick them up. Never mind a real human who's dead weight. That's heavy. But now we have dead weight with a metal bone structure. We're not exactly sure. It seems the material they are being 3D printed with could be of a slightly different uh, substance lighter. that's lighter weight. Yeah. Yeah, they are moving fast. But again, I think this is what their intended purpose is. And now this is the ultimate emergency security team that's coming mm-hmm. in to clean everything up. So they're probably used to having to move quickly. Carl Strand seems to be a real no-nonsense leader. Yeah, and they're bringing all those bodies into the same section. And what they showed us was there's Teddy, which was kind of a, yes, you were correct if in episode one you thought that was Teddy floating there. Absolutely. The question of whether his consciousness is in somebody else, I still don't know if I'm buying into that, but there was a... Never heard of that. Did we say that? I think we brought it up as a possibility suggested by other people. We didn't love it as a theory. Teddy's conscious? The idea that Bernard might have had Teddy's consciousness in him. And Mm. a couple of people said in this episode, he looked at him weird in that stack of bodies. But Hmm. is his consciousness that valuable? It's not to me. I don't think so. You know, we had talked about if anybody was going to receive that special human host pearl and get upgraded from a regular host to a human host it was probably either going to be dr ford himself um, which you didn't like as much in favor of him living inside of the system to gain immortality or it could be bernard finally really becoming a real boy so to make that (laughs) distinction we'll go into it later on last episode we weren't saying that definitively he was there yet from what the show was explaining to us. He is not yet a human host in full, but perhaps that could be what they're aiming for. And by these future scenes, we are seeing a human host, Bernard. Which I think is a really good twist on the whole Westworld storyline. Yeah, and watching some of these scenes, that kind of would add up. I'm trying to look at it through those eyes. If this is a newly changed not regular host Bernard anymore. It would explain some of the ways he's portraying the character. Yeah. If he becomes Arnold, now that Ford's gone, we have that solid boss again, Mm. which I think will help with the storyline. And I think it'll be so intriguing to see, okay, now let's see the real Arnold. How is he going to treat this? And if what you're saying is true and he's the real Arnold, plus he can still kind of access Ford and Ford's knowledge through the mesh network. Oh, man. He becomes all-powerful, right? He's not there yet, though. Right now, he's just still kind of standing, looking a bit confused, a bit unsure. Antoine Costa, the tech that we saw in episode one, removes the control unit, a white one, from the head of a host. He says they're pulling what they can from recovered host control units. What's really unsettling is what's in about a third of them. What's that? Nothing. They've been wiped? More like they're virgin. Like they never held data to begin with. No user prints or anything. And that's not the worst of it. Can't recover anything from the cradle. No host backups can be restored. So at this, Strand realizes they've lost a third of the IP. I don't even know if I want to start getting into conjecture of what this could mean. Well, the third of the IP that they lost is because the backups were burned. So they can't even get it from the hosts. 
there was a section when he was talking about the backups. It looked like a room, an actual room that was burned. But this tech here, Costa, is saying that it's not as though these units they're pulling from the host that were drowned in the lake were right. wiped or destroyed. It's as though they never had any data to begin with. Which is crazy. So these are two different things. That's the first problem. Someone wiped them. And if we're going to go purely by this episode, it looks like maybe that was Dolores. Mm -hmm. I say no, because when she was talking to her technician in regards to Teddy. Phil is her technician. He was saying, you sure we shouldn't do a complete overwrite? Me just writing this on top of his storyline might Mm -hmm. get things... So I don't believe he was the one that would be able to, even if he wanted to, wipe it out. I think that's something to do with Bernard. It has to be very advanced because if they're looking at it saying it doesn't appear as though it's been wiped, this is not a procedure I think everyone would know how to do. How do you get them to come to a place where they look like they've never had data? Right. Are these completely new control units they placed into their heads that never have had data? Are there real control units being stored somewhere for upload back into a new body and this was the way to save all of those hosts? Because way back when we saw the hosts drowned in the lake, even at that point, we were between it could be Bernard or it could be Dolores who did We also said if it was Bernard, maybe this was his way of getting them into safety. Like he made copies of them. He was trying to free them somehow. So if he had removed those control units to save them for later, and these were kind of decoy bodies, so they would think they were dead, that could be a possibility still. I think that's very much a possibility. But I think what he would have done is made copies first, kept those control units in there because they're probably serialized. So if he just swapped them out, they would know. But how does he make them look so clean then? Well, if anyone can do a full wipe, what we mean by full wipe, let me just real quick. I know you're using the terminology wipe. I think that's going to get confusing because he says it looks like they haven't been wiped. It's as though they're fresh. Right. So when you wipe your computer before you sell it or you wipe your phone, that data is still there, believe it or not. Right. You have to use a program. You have to really know what the hell you're doing (laughs) in order to completely delete all data and make it a virgin again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Bernard did. Does Ra- that take a long time? Would he be able to do that? If you're in the network, no. wouldn't okay. take a long time at all. You do it all at once. Okay. At my job, we have hundreds of computers all connected. We can update them or delete things with one button mm-hmm. all at once because they're all on a network. Mm. So I think that's, you know, this is still an idea, but I think we're on the right track here. Yes, let's stress. We don't know that. We don't know how they got to be this way. Right. But further, that was problem number one that Costa was talking about. Problem number two was an actual room that was completely burned. And that's where all the backup data was stored. Oh, see, when he said he lost a third of the IP, I thought he meant the data that they could no longer get from the host because they'd been wiped. The reason why I think it's different is because it get, he says he says all this about the control units, but then says it gets worse. And then they show a picture on his iPad of a room that's all burned. And he said it, it all burned, and now we lost a third of the IP. Okay. So is that referencing one of those, because it seems like I missed this, one of those underground labs where the secret information was? 
I believe so. Some of the stuff they were trying to upload to Peter Abernathy. I believe so. And just to be completely transparent here, I'm taking that short scene and I'm extrapolating yeah. tremendously. Yeah. Well, it was it was difficult. A lot packed in there. And Strand ends on this really bold note that it seems he thinks Ford is behind all this. He says, quite a story he gave them. One hell of an ending. How did all these disparate threads come together to create this nightmare? How does this story turn? So if they could figure out what Ford was up to with all of this, they might know where it goes next. And as we have kind of surmised before, I think that Bernard is very quickly going to find himself in some hot water, pressured to give more information about it. And where we go next is over to Westworld. In Sweetwater, the player piano plays the theme song, but now there's blood on the paper and it rolls to a stop as Dolores and Teddy ride through the streets. There's destruction everywhere and seemingly everyone is dead. Even though Teddy says this is the place he always returned to and something carries him back, Dolores says this was never their real home. The train stands still at the platform and Dolores orders a thorough inspection and tells her crew to fix what's broke and strip her for speed. So going off of what we've seen already in this episode, which is that one scene that we just talked about, we know that they once again lost Peter. So we know that whatever she's about to do works. So they're going to fix this train, probably get rid of all the extra cars, and they're going to go towards Mesa. And yeah, to when, get him, but and then what? Well, that's when they destroy Mesa. Mm-hmm. We're talking about fires. Mesa's destroyed. Central Hub is destroyed. This is all what Dolores is about to do. And do they want to leave? Is that the ultimate goal, to leave the island and go start their revolution? Well, we've heard from Dolores that her goal was to take control of the greater world. But I believe, well, you know what? That would be good TV if season three, she's out in the real world. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, that would be awesome. So let's say yes. Well, that we, would be amazing. We keep expanding at a faster rate than we thought we were going to. This season, we've opened up inside of the park a bit more. I sort of thought we would get to see the other three parks on the island before we saw the greater world. I don't know that we have time for that in the rest of this season, but we move through Raj World and Shogun World really quick. Well, I think Raj World was really just, that's what you get. You right. Know, they're not going to spend time. But uh, the so real world, I think that could be season three. They can stretch these two weeks before Bernard wakes up. They can stretch that five more episodes. What I was saying, do you think we'll see the other three parks in Oh, this not this season. No, no, no. no okay. Not at all. I'm getting excited. I want to know what else is out there. <laughs> But back to Sweetwater, Teddy and Dolores enter the Mariposa, and he wonders what they're doing with the train. This is where she says they have to get her father back. The new Clementine character, seems to be the only one left here, starts repeating that original narrative, which triggers our Clementine. She begins looking confused and upset. Yeah, well, confused is the look she has constantly since she's gotten that lobotomy. Right. Uh, But very upset. That was actually a touching scene for me. Which is funny because if you take a step back from that feeling and you look at myself feeling that, you're saying you're feeling emotion off of a script that this woman's saying constantly, which is sad in itself, then off the original person who used to say that script to Teddy. Yeah. But it was very sad. And every so often Westworld does bring you some levity because we are getting a little numb to it. Let's be honest. We're becoming the MIB, the man in black. You know, this is like, yeah, yeah, they, they kill each other. And it's, <laughs> as we said, really hard to have empathy for hosts this season, given everything we're seeing going on here. 
it's moments like that that make me kind of feel for their plight again. It's certainly extremely difficult with Dolores. And it was a little hard for me with Maeve. I mean, the, the looking for her daughter thing is getting so stretched out. And everything we're learning about her in between, they're kind of starting to lose me on that thread a bit as well. Oh, really? With Maeve? That's the only storyline that I'm not losing any kind of momentum. I still really enjoy it. She's one of the most captivating characters. I guess what I'm worried about is that their reunion is going to be nothing like what we expect or want by the time she gets there. Everything she's learned about herself. Mm. Well, mm. I hope there's a twist. Mm-hmm. Like I said to one of our Clatchers who was worried that this would be like lost in the end where it, there is no payoff. Let's not worry about that. Let's enjoy the ride while it's going on. There's a lot of good storyline here. There's some bad for sure or some stretched out. I'd frustrating. Say. Yeah, yeah frustrating. more frustrating than anything else. And while I do often feel that way about Teddy and Dolores, I actually really enjoyed the next scene. She tells Teddy there's some place she wants to see, and they ride out to where they used to watch the herd together and talk about making a life one day. Teddy says there's a fight coming, one that will change us in ways we can't begin to predict. I'm still waking up to what I really am. If that means I'm free, then we both are. Free to walk away. Somewhere out there, there must be a spot for us. And for a minute when he said that, I thought she was really going to consider it. I didn't. I, I mean, I know <laughs> what she's like now, and I know that the somewhere out there is a thing Teddy says. Did you think he was woke there? No, but he, he's, I think he's coming to it. He has to go through his own process the way these other hosts did, mm. and maybe if she would have given him time, he could have gotten there. It's still a very good question. Do we need to fight this fight, or is it enough for us to be free and just go find a place to live, which is what Maeve seems to want to do? Just give me a little piece of what's mine to be happy. But then she comes back with this horrible allegory. She tells him a story of the year her and her father almost lost their herd to Blue Tongue which I looked up, it's non-contagious, just as she says, cow to cow, but an insect-borne viral disease, mainly of sheep, but sometimes it can hit cattle. Dolores says they quarantined those who had it, but it kept spreading. Her father figured out it was the flies that carried it. How do you stop a sickness like that? She asked Teddy what he would do in that situation, and he responds he would house the weakest in the barn away from the flies until it passed. She thinks, somewhat disappointedly, he's a kind man, but daddy burned the weak and the infected. Flies hate smoke. The herd lived. Okay, at this point, I knew Dolores has given up on Teddy. You are so kind, but you're not strong enough for me. You're not man enough for me. Daddy was, and that's who I'm going to find. You failed the test. The answer was to kill the weak. Yeah, which I'm not liking this storyline. I don't like this Terminator type thing, especially considering the Dolores we grew to like in the beginning. But also, I think it's pretty cool that they went back to the flies. In season one, the first time everyone freaked out is when she killed a fly on her face. And then we saw hosts glitching very often in tandem with when a fly would land on them. And I wondered if this was going to come back for some more meaning as though that was the symbolic consciousness moving from host to host and then beginning to awaken. And if that's the case, does awakening represent a sickness? Ooh, that's deep. Is it not really a good thing? I mean, we know that Ford and Arnold argued about that a lot. Ultimately, it seemed they did both want them to come to consciousness, but we saw way back in season one with very many of them, when that happened, the result was they went mad. When they heard the bicameral mind, 
They didn't know if it was God's talking to them, if they were hallucinating. We saw that church where all the hosts were sitting just glitching out because they couldn't get past, I guess, their cognitive plateau, similar to what we saw with James Delos. So I feel like this story wasn't an accident. There's probably something more behind it. We brought up a few episodes ago the fact that Dolores talked about the Judas steer in season one when they were looking out on the same valley. The Judas steer being the one that would lead all the rest of the cows to the slaughter. They would follow it home, not knowing it was their death. Ugh. It would seem to be that Dolores is a bit of the Judas steer right now, leading all these hosts to their own death. Well, back in town, Angela rides in and tells Dolores she caught up with the men who took her father. She couldn't get Peter back, but took a man to reveal their destination, which is the Mesa. Dolores orders everything loaded up and says they will leave at first light. Her and Teddy go inside the saloon to spend the night. Dolores leads him up to a bedroom where they have sex. It was reported everywhere for the first time. I guess that didn't really click for me. They did film that scene in a way that I knew the creators were trying to show us something instead of the crude nudity or sexual scenes we've gotten in the past. It was treated with a lot of respect. It was more cinematic. Sex scenes in movies tend to be like that close-ups of the shape of the body rather than the actual parts of the body that indicate sex for humans. And very caring, very affectionate. I was thinking in the moment... Are they trying to show us there is a real connection being formed? Is Dolores trying to see if it's possible? Is she trying to see if there's a way to bring Teddy along because she does still <laughs> care about him on some level? But this was just a goodbye. That's what I think. She did say to Teddy later on that exactly those words. I was trying to see if this was more than just code. Mm -hmm. And then she said it, it was more, but then turned real quick. Did you notice that uh, season one was a lot of naked women bodies? Season two is a lot of penis. Yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, but now it's even more. The beginning of this episode, it was just like dick, dick, dick. Well, then we got James Marston's ass, which I'm not going to complain about. And so that you're not the only one talking about it now, Jason. Did you forget my name? No. <laughs> oh. Yes, I'm glitching out. I think everybody was happy to see that. But I do think, all joking aside, how they're representing the nudity does show something. The moving away from it with certain characters, the way certain hosts are being portrayed. On the whole now, it's the humans that are being subjugated, that are at the whims of the host plans and the host desires, whereas the hosts are very often being treated or looked upon in a more human light we get a sex scene that looks like two humans mm. that are in love making love so it's that whole focus oh, like that, that we talked about season one season two shifting it's a joke people i'm being silly <laughs> please <laughs> don't write in the reviews that boy is creepy he's objectifying it's a joke. people it's a joke it's a joke <laughs> one last thing that she says here is she's been thinking about what teddy said to her and would he want her to say yes if she was only going to disappoint him she she is still kind of feeling things out i think even though she knows what her decision has to be and thus later she tells him there's something that she needs to show him for days, she's been questioning her feelings for him, how much is real and how much a story she's been made to believe. Now she knows it all was true and that she has seen him clearly over the past few days. And what she's seen is he's not going to make it. She takes him to the back where she shows him rotting flesh of some kind and says, if we're going to survive, some of us will have to burn. Ugh. 
So first of all, when he wakes up, she's standing there. So creepy. Watch mm. that scene again. It was like, ugh. She's leading him to the slaughter. Let's face facts. She doesn't kill him, but essentially she kills him. Yeah. By reprogramming him to this level, and we will discuss the things she changed, he is not Teddy anymore. I don't know if in her mind, once the war is over, she could change him back. She's putting him to a setting that he can survive what's yet to come. Otherwise, he was doomed. And then she can make him back to the old Teddy. I, I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt because I'm really having a difficult time kind of getting on board with this. But she has her men hold Teddy down while Phil the tech adjusts his settings and says, to grow, we all need to suffer. So what were these settings? Right. I was not quick enough to catch it, but thankfully someone on Reddit caught a screenshot of those apperception levels we saw back in season one. There was a couple of teddies around that circle that she left the same. So we have the before and after images. Charm was at a level seven for both. Humor at a zero. Sensuality at a zero for both. And I... Teddy had some sensuality. I don't really get that. Um, And loyalty, the same, at a 19. And you would expect she would want to keep that. 19 out of what? I believe 20 is the highest it goes. I was going to say, because he was pretty loyal. They only show up to a certain number, and then they show max. I haven't seen anything higher than 19. So the first one was charm? Correct. So I'm a a 20. Next one? Humor. 20. (laughs) No. Next one? Sensuality. 20. And loyalty. 19. Because I stray. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's talk about the ones she lowered and then the ones she upped. The ones she lowered included empathy. No surprise. She brought him down from an 18 to a zero. Mm. All of these, actually, she's going to bring him down to a total zero. Curiosity from a nine to zero. Imagination, 11 to zero. Patience, 17 to zero. Humility, 18 to zero. Meekness, 13 to zero. Vivacity, five to zero. So a robot, a literal she robot. She took away all of those elements that were more human, I believe, the empathy, yeah. the imagination, but anything that could potentially, A, put him in harm's way, or B, make him go against her plan. And that's, that's what was what's important. really scary. And especially if you look at what she upped, she upped the things that are going to make him a soldier. All of these levels, except for one, were upped to max. Candor was only upped from a three to a ten. So she only wants him honest to her (laughs) midway. She wants him to be able to lie to others when necessary. Everything else she brought up. He was at a seven for courage, a zero for aggression, which I can't believe for a gunslinger, even in that set narrative. He was at zero zero? to 20. Yeah, these were all maxed. Tenacity was a five, decisiveness a nine, self preservation a five, cruelty a zero all maxed coordination she brought from a 12 to a max and bulk apperception from a four to a max so she made him mave like smart and that's the part that puzzles me Mm. if she wants a follower and a fighter why would she want his bulk apperception up that much you don't want somebody that's going to be good enough that they can question and overtake you so that was the only thing that made me wonder is there more to what she's thinking about. Maybe she put her apperception that high too. So it'd be fine. Perhaps. I still wouldn't want somebody (laughs) that close who who could be going against me, you know? Well, if she wants Teddy to be the hand of the queen, Mm. um, I guess you would want it up there. 
She wants yeah, him. I'd, I'd maybe cap it at a 17. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But that's all we get of Dolores and Teddy for this time. Now we're going to move on to the big feature for the episode, Shogun World. We'll start off by saying I was wrong last time. Maven crew had, in fact, crossed into Shogun World, presumably from traveling through those tunnels. So I was right. You were correct, Jason. <laughs> you want to give yourself a little ding? From where we left off last time, she narrowly escapes being cut with this katana. A samurai rounds up her, Lee, Hector, Armistice, Felix, and Sylvester with a lasso, surprisingly enough. She tries to give a verbal command for them to stand down, but the samurai just orders her gagged. As they're walked back to town, Lee sees the local police lay dead and mutilated on the ground. You get some little bits of humor in here that I think help to lighten the episode, particularly when we see Sylvester and Felix together. Sylvester wonders why Felix doesn't say something to them, and he retorts, I'm from Hong Kong, <laughs> asshole. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Lee explains Shogun World to Maeve that it's for the guests who consider Westworld too tame. Because it's based on Japan's Edo period, it will be violent. And when Maeve realizes she can understand their language, Lee says all the hosts have that skill buried in their code. So they all have the ability to just understand and switch at will. But the fact that the group didn't switch to English when Lee spoke means the Shogun World hosts are revolting as well. Well, I think also Lee was kind of a comic relief in this episode as well. He, he had very is. funny quips. Yeah, but they were really landed in this episode. And yet again with his costumes, we went from that silly farm boy outfit <laughs> to later on he's going to put on a sort of samurai outfit, but <laughs> he's not wearing it well. So I was on a bit of a roller coaster of thoughts in this. When Maeve spoke her control, I was like, ooh, it's working here too. And then as soon as Musashi was tie her up and gag her, I was like, oh, she does not have control here. Oh, see, immediately to me, it was so obvious. Last time her verbal commands didn't work with Ghost Nation because she wasn't speaking Lakota. Right. So I immediately thought same thing here. She's not speaking the right language. And, you know, Lee does tell her that. He is proving to have some useful information for her. This scene really set me up for Shogun World. It, it kind of let us know right away, okay, this is a more dangerous place. The fact that they didn't start speaking English when I spoke means we are fucked. Mm -hmm. And that led to the next scene with them walking while tied up. And I really love the journey they gave us for Shogun World. I thought this was very well written out. Yeah, entering the town, you definitely get that feel right away. The comparisons are drawn right away. There's a bug placed on a man's head as he meditates, which is just like the scorpion that was placed on someone's head in Westworld. Yeah, and this is when Armistice says, this all feels a little too familiar. Paint it black picks up. People are shooting arrows here instead of guns, stabbing each other. Violence is everywhere. When they begin realizing that these people are their doppelbots, Lee admits he may have stolen some character traits from Westworld. After all, you try writing 300 stories in three weeks. And for the record, it's not just the narrative bones that are identical. You've plagiarized our stories, our, our identity. It's not plagiarism. It's supply and demand. But if you're asking, can you trust Akane? The real question is, can you trust yourself? Not surprising, giving everything we knew about Lee, right? Not surprising at all. He's just going to recycle this shit. I got to tell you, though, as a creative person who gets paid to be creative, when you put too much on me and the turnaround is too quick, I will revert 
to things that I've already created oh, and I sure. will just twist it a little bit to make it look different. Yeah. That is human nature. He just happens to be an asshole. So you find it as a weakness. But this is done many times over in the real world. Everyone does that. And he's had to do it really quick. We had a Clatcher write in a really good question about this. Nikki said she was curious how long Lee had been working there. How long have these storylines been running? He seems like such a key player and he's been around some time. So why hasn't he noticed Bernard never ages? There's a lot of things that maybe don't add up. I would say Lee is not the most observant or caring of people, but it's a good question. Who was there before him? Are all of these narratives his? I have a feeling Lee is going to become more important to the story as we move along. We talked about that. And he's certainly going to prove that in a couple of scenes, but we'll get there. And those are good questions. As far as the Bernard question, I don't have an answer, except for the fact that Jeffrey Wright, the actor who plays Bernard, he's looked the same for many years, maybe a little younger yeah. in the eyes. So he might be one of those faces that Doesn't you would age. think like, oh, he just ages really freaking yeah, well. for sure. But also keep in mind that Lee seems like he's been there for a while and he is a major player at this point. But I'm thinking it's under 10 years. Right. And exactly. you can, especially at that mid age where Bernard is, you would believe that non-aging factor because he already looks like he could be young. He could be 40 or he could be 55. Mm-hmm. You don't, you can't really tell. And that's my guess. And this is our real introduction to Musashi, who used to serve as the captain. Now he seems to run this tea house, Shogun's version of the Mariposa, where Akane works as the Madame Geisha. Hanario shoots all those coming after them, and Armistice shouts helpful advice to her. After the woman is able to kill all the rest, she cuts Armistice loose, saying, even a snake can prove a dragon. Now we move inside, where the attacking samurais are taking the gold and intimidating the geishas, just like the safe heist, when Maeve's group enters. She orders them to lay down their swords, this time in their language. That's right. And it works. This is where we get a little bit of that recognition from Sakura and Maeve and Akani recognize their bond. Then they all sit and watch as the dance takes place. Maeve is impatient to get on with things and find her daughter. But Lee quietly tells her to calm down. He explains the narrative bones are just like Westworld, so if you don't hear them out, you've dishonored them. However, he too is worried these feedback loops and hosts encountering their counterparts will cause things to get ugly soon. That's what I was referencing earlier. Yes. Even he's picking up on it, mm-hmm. there has to come a point where that becomes a narrative problem. I, I think I finally get what you're saying. In the later episodes, we might see this becoming a... Lack of yin and yang, it's going to be more yin and ying, mm-hmm. and there's going to be some friction. Right now, they're so busy with what's going on, with surviving, that it doesn't matter at this point. How can you come to that awakening, that full consciousness of, I am a person, completely independent, nobody has built me, no one has created me. You see how much the host freaked out when they saw those narrative loops that they didn't even have control over what direction their speech was going in. When you encounter somebody that is so much like yourself, doesn't that just prove internally that you are a robot, you are a replication? That's how I would feel. So I know that would create a lot of confusion internally for me. But for now, as we said, everything's okay. After the performance is finished, an emissary enters and tells Madame Akane the Shogun is encamped nearby and wishes to be entertained. They've asked for Sakura, 
the best dancer, not just to perform, but to acquire her permanently. Akane explains when she was first brought to her, Sakura had been abused. It took her years to bring her back. She's not for sale. Lee recognizes this narrative, which is called Army of Blood, and so tells Maeve Akane will have no choice but to give her up. And this reflects back to the title of this episode. You stated that it's called Akane's Dance, but it's also the Red Dance. Yeah, that's what some people have been saying. I've seen that on the internet, but I know that somebody who is familiar with the Japanese language wrote in to tell us about the Akane's Dance. I don't really know where that's coming from. I mean... Definitely adds in with the army of blood and the dance that we're going to see Akane do later on. And what she's wearing looks like it has blood on it. Mm-hmm. Foreshadowed throughout. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. I, you know, I don't know this language. No, I don't either. <laughs> and please. If we're any- trying our best. Yeah. If anybody knows more, write in. But I definitely see those themes you're talking about. And it does show what's to come. This is also the part where we see these hosts have the ability to make choices too. When the emissary becomes angry and demanding, Akane unexpectedly stabs him in the face. And Maeve thinks, okay, they have a choice after all. This guy was very intimidating. Uh, To quote him, he said, When the shogun asks for meat, he does not wish to hear the story of the cow. Mm -hmm. Meaning, I don't give a shit about what you feel about this woman. You he wants her, her and you're going to give her, name your price. If it's too much, I'll kill you anyways, which was awesome. It's so cool to see our heroes. And I don't say that often in this particular show with the magicians. I always called them heroes. Mm. In this, I don't call them heroes because we really don't have good guys. Everyone kind of is a bad guy in one way or the other. Or a gray guy. <laughs> but Maeve especially this season, feels like a hero to me and her crew following her feel like heroes. So I'm going to say heroes. They look and they just watch because at this point, they don't know enough. They're still trying to figure out what's going on. And Maeve was getting a little impatient there. Lee was the one who helped calm her down. That's why I say he kind of proves his worth a little this episode. Well, she was getting impatient because she wanted to get get on with this shit. Absolutely. (laughs) This was a necessary... But I mean, at this moment with this guy walking in, obviously Maeve understands the language. She sees what's going on. The whole time I was waiting for her to say something because this would be when she would say something. But instead she was watching her counterpart and how she reacts. Letting her come to her own. Yeah. Kind of step up to this. It does create problems. Akane tells Musashi the Shogun will seek revenge for this. He has to help them escape. And that's where Lee pipes up to suggest Snow Lake. Sakura says it's a peaceful place where she was born, and Lee tells Maeve quietly that it's her cornerstone. But it also has an access point back to the tunnels. It's a way out. And this particular moment is why I put Lee on the MVB on Twitter. Agreed. Presumably that's where they'll be headed after the end of this episode. Musashi agrees to this plan. This is where we see one of the first brief flashbacks Maeve has to putting her daughter to bed. So they're trying to correlate the similarity between Maeve and her daughter and Anakane and Sakura. Yeah, the, the feelings of motherhood, protectiveness, true affection and caring. I think it all reminds her of that. Then they cut scene to where the whole crew is inside waiting to leave. I don't really know what they were waiting on. It's growing towards night now. Yeah. Drums are playing. There's kind of tension building. And something weird happens here that I don't totally get. 
Maeve starts to remember her past again. She pictures herself putting a bunch of objects into a cloth that looks like she's packing them up. And this somehow seems to trigger an understanding of what's about to happen next. It's almost like she gets a flash vision of the man climbing up the window and then the man is climbing up the window. How I perceived that was that was the first moment that she was breaking into... The mesh network? Exactly. So was she actually seeing in her mind what he was doing out there? And where he was, yep. Okay. Because... It's like uh, you have a GPS. That makes sense. You know, you know where she's remotely is. accessing him. And because she was going in her mind, just like when she was getting choked out, which we'll get to in a moment, where it was no longer trying to do it. It was just subconsciously. So did that happen because they were about to be in extreme peril? And this is a survival instinct, a fight for their life. Or is it somehow triggered to these flashbacks? Uh, no, I think she was kind of in a meditative state at that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which some say when you're about to die, you go into that meditative state briefly. That would reflect the similarities with both times that she broke into the mesh. Mm-hmm. Well, she realizes the man has climbed the roof just in time to avoid the knife he throws at her. More men climb over and an all-out ambush ensues. Musashi and Hector try to fight them off. Maeve orders one to turn his weapon on his friend, but she is then overtaken. The crew is being overpowered. The host attackers seem to know to silence Maeve and Lee from speaking their commands. They're both strangling them, closing off their mouths so they can't speak. And as Maeve is being choked, a static sound rises in her ears, and she manages to send a silent message to her attacker to kill himself, whereby he impales his head on a knife. This time, it really begins to look like telepathy. It's the nonverbal commands, and I wondered if this was the same kind of thing Ford used to be able to do when he was able to give commands to the host without speaking. You just yeah, I remember talking waved about that. his hand. <laughs> Absolutely. That's exactly the same case. Mm-hmm. He would just speak to them wirelessly. Yeah. Throughout this whole time, Lee being Lee, and very funny in this episode, he goes, ninjas never show up in this story. And then moments later, the Shogun's army never comes into town. It's like, dude, get with the program. Yeah. It's not the same storyline that you wrote. A lot of people were criticizing that. The really? fact that Lee just can't, how many times is it going to take him to come to that realization that the narratives are all off script? I think it's more like that's the only power he has here. The only thing he can do to help is know where things are going mm-hmm. based on the narratives. And if he has no understanding and consistency to that, it's frightening. Well, I think also because even in all this, he starts to see his narrative playing again. Right. Because they're not completely off script. We, we've said this in the past. Even when they're woke, they're going through the sayings that he has written the for them. The bones, like so he said before. Exactly. So he's just been sitting there watching this quest called the Army of Blood play through, just like he wrote it. And then all of a sudden, again, it's off script. Mm-hmm. So he's thrown off again. Every time he gets a little bit comfortable, he gets thrown off again. And we're humans. We think we're in control constantly. (laughs) We always do that to ourselves. Well, after Maeve gives that command, Musashi is able to take care of the rest. But once the dust settles, the group realizes Sakura was taken. And the Shogun army are now approaching in the streets. They order Akane to come out and face justice. I don't know about you, but for me, we have a really big, we have a 70-inch LG screen. Uh, But one of the things is blacks aren't pure black. So oftentimes it affects dark scenery. So it might not be the same for everybody. 
these fighting scenes looked awesome, except for the fact that it was too dark, and half the time I couldn't figure Hard out what was see. going on. Yeah. You you got that too. Sometimes. Um, once they were out in the street, which I know was a common complaint, I was able to see it a little bit better okay. with the men approaching. In fact... <laughs> oh, this was a complaint everyone had? Yes. Oh, great. For certain it's scenes. It's me. not just you. But I noticed that the hats that the Shogun army men are wearing almost looked like they had flags directly coming off of them. So I'm not sure what that represents. Flag day. I do know that there were different types of hats utilized in this culture or different types of kasa, as they call it. Amigasa were the straw pointy hats we saw men wearing earlier on, whereas the hats worn by war men, samurais, were called jingasa. I think, Christina, this would be a good part of the episode to go over briefly what we did in the spoilers section of last episode where you broke down the levels of seniority or power. Hierarchy, yeah, in the society. It was surprising to us to look it up because the bottom two levels of the pyramid were merchants and craftsmen. Then you go up to peasants. Then just above that, you have the military leader and actual ruling class. Then the samurai. Then I think you have a man like the captain, Captain Tanaka, who is in charge of that group. Then you have the daimyo, which is the shogun's personal army men that we'll see later on. Right. (laughs) And then the shogun himself, which is the figurehead. And finally, above him is the emperor and his court nobility. And that's the only step that we didn't see, that very highest tier. Now, where a disgraced captain winds up on that ranking, I'm really not sure. Well, that would be a ronin. So they're not even on it. There's no place for a ronin there. So I don't know. But based on his previous past, Musashi does know that these men will intend to force the town into submission. Maeve has an idea. She tells him to buy them some time. So he goes out to speak to Tanaka. And him, Hector, and Armistice attempt to fight to buy Maeve some time but are quickly put to sword point. Here, Lee says to Maeve he thinks their odds are weak and they should ditch Sakura and make a run for it, just like they were intending to do initially, but let's not even get her back. After all, their love and caring for each other is just code. And what about her daughter she cares about so much? Maeve really puts her foot down and says he's free to leave any time, but never speak about her daughter again. That machine's name is Sakura. You can't keep doing this to us, giving us people to love and then getting upset when we do. But it's just fucking code. You're wrong. I'm coded to care about nobody but myself, and yet here I am willing to risk my life for someone else. Well, so much for your so-called daughter. You want to go it alone, be my guest. But mention my daughter one more time and I will snap you like a matchstick. Like you did that ninja. He took one look at you and self-impaled. How did you do that? I don't know. That was no voice command. I think I'm finding a new voice. I love how she says you can't keep doing this to us, giving us someone to love and getting upset when we do. Mm. And this is when Maeve, I think this is the third time she's done this to us, makes us question the whole woke, saying to us, yes, this was scripted in me to love my child and to want to get back to her. But But it's no less real. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it makes us second guess. I'm still feeling like no one really is woke. I still think this is all Ford's new narrative that they were talking about in season one. 
But she, every time she does that, she makes me second guess for a while. Well, and are the things that are off narrative or off script really them just achieving higher levels of access into a technology they were not meant to have? So increasing their perception levels, their ability levels by accessing these past memories by whatever superpowers Maeve is now able to have to speak commands, does that appear to put her in some kind of higher state where it's really her just finding end arounds? Well, yeah. And also putting her at perception at 20, all those things, the software. I really believe that Ford knows of this and put that software there on purpose Putting her at 20 is part of the game. Maybe there's 100, and he's only giving 20. Mm -hmm. And even the workers think this is the highest, you know? I mean, he's in full control. This is his software. This is his world. Well, and I don't want to run back over this all again because it's incredibly complex, but everyone had their own opinions of what makes somebody human and what it means to reach that level. There were certainly baseline important things, such as Ford believed in the suffering, the cornerstone. Arnold believed there was a series of steps to come to eventually the bicameral mind where you would communicate with yourself. But in conversations that people often have about AI, you will usually say the consciousness, the thinking brain part about it is a piece, but definitely not the biggest piece. Am I only the result of my thoughts, my memories, my past experiences? And if you uploaded that, that's all me. Most people would disagree with that. They would say human emotion and feeling is another gigantic factor, and that's why we did all of our theorizing <laughs> that Bernard as a host could be different, not because his whole consciousness has already been downloaded as Arnold, but because Ford tried to make that human heart and rainbow of emotion <laughs> within him, tried to sculpt him to mirror the human Arnold more. And finally, there's that third tier that people will say, well, there's also a soul. There's this more undefinable thing that people have. There's the morality of what's right and wrong. There's the belief in something bigger. There's a connection. And I think as you go up those steps, it's more and more difficult for us to answer if these hosts have levels of that or any of that at all. Well, coming back to Lee and Maeve here, he is kind of amazed, wondering how she managed to command the ninja to kill himself. She tells him she thinks she's finding a new voice. And they hear their transportation is ready. They begin walking towards the Shogun camp. And as they go, they see the cavalry dead and tied to posts with these box-like things over their heads. This is where Lee hears a crackling sound and excuses himself to... Urinate. Well, I was going to say in the guise of needing to take a piss. Yes. Because really what he's going for is this radio that he sees on this man. This takes me back to... A couple of episodes ago when we saw Ghost Nation host, I could have sworn that I saw what looked like a radio on him, right. a walkie-talkie. Yeah. I never got any feedback from listeners about that. But now I'm really thinking it was whatever this same type of radio is. And does that take us back to is Ghost Nation some type of private security force within Westworld the way we have these people here in Shogun World? And if so, who are they communicating with? What is their role why does Lee know that it's going to be useful to have that? It's then that the group sees the camp gathered in the valley below. Sylvester thinks, oh boy, Maeve's going to freeze all of them while we make off with the geisha? We're all dead. They have a plan, uh, admittedly a flimsy one. They're posing as the Imperial Chinese envoy, the one that Musashi murdered in the mountain town. These were great scenes, right? You yeah. You felt the it peril. It was so scary. 
You know, Akani's pretending to be the wife, Maeve the translator. They're brought before the shogun. Very intimidating. Maeve comes forward with all formality to offer him a gift. The guardian of the three provinces, a statue cast by the emperor's personal goldsmith. So she learned from Lee with what he was saying. You got to play the game. Which is great that she she listened to him. Uh, But the shogun rudely tosses the gift to the ground. Says he killed 2,000 men and burned the castle to the ground, then united the land by sheer force of will. As he talks, he begins glitching out, leaking cortical fluid from the ear. They see he's not awake, but malfunctioning. He switches back and forth, laughing, accusing them of not having a sense of humor, but then doubling down on his brutality. He explains the ninjas told him they encountered a witch. He had to protect his men from Maeve's mystic commands, at which point he shows them that all of his crew's ears have been burned off. I really like the way they played this scene out. With Lee stating after Maeve had that beautiful speech, I feel like you're speaking a different language. These guys had no idea what you were talking about. And then we realized they do not have ears. I thought that was beautifully done. The level he was willing to go. And, you know, they were questioning. They thought maybe this mean Shogun guy had come to this real awakening. I'm not sure why he was leaking cortical fluid. If he had sustained some type of damage the way we saw with Bernard if he had tried to mess with his own ears or if he had just gotten hit and he was leaking it, or is it his malfunctioning that's then leading to the leak of cortical fluid? Because we had wondered. I wonder, yeah. With Bernard trying to absorb all this information, potentially maybe trying to download some of that Peter Abernathy file, was it too much? And that's what exacerbated the cortical fluid damage? Well, yeah, before he started downloading that Peter Abernathy information, he was already draining. Mm Mm-hmm. From the gunshot. But Ford has been missing for a while, or dead for a while. So every time Bernard has these realizations, he reboots him. He's not here to reboot him, so maybe that's what's leading to the cortical fluid. Mm, Not just the gunshot. Yeah. But, well, you keep saying gunshot, there's no wound. And I don't remember him shooting himself. Oh, he shot himself with Ford. Ford made him shoot himself. The but I, I, I think reason, he fixed him after that. While though. the reason you're not seeing it, there are some scenes where they do show a scar and there are some scenes where they don't. And that's led to a lot of speculation as to other Bernard stuff that I don't want to get off on that tangent now. But you're correct. You don't always see that scar. Yeah, it still brings us back to the same question. And I think they show us that here with the Shogun for a reason so that we start to wonder why is that happening to certain hosts. This one, however, is certainly having a major malfunction. He manages to kind of bring himself back onto this script. He proposes a deal to Akane. If she dances with Sakura tonight, he will free them both. And Akane really has no choice but to relent. So off of this conversation with Akane, was it that he always truly loved her? There was a little piece of that. I think he he was enchanted with her. Mm. Maybe, if nothing else, she was the best dancer he had ever seen. This is her protege, and now he wants to see the both of them dance together. Thus, the women go to a tent to prepare for the performance. Akane bears Sakura's back to reveal a cherry blossom tree was carved into her skin. It was beautiful and completely brutal at the same time. Yes, I watched this episode without you, and I thought that, when I saw the tattoo, I was like, Christina loves mm-hmm. trees. She paints it all the time. I was she so must love that tattoo, yeah. But it was so horrible what had been yeah, done to her. of course. I think maybe that's something we were supposed to feel. It's also an opportunity, of course, for Akane to assure her. She says, great things lie ahead for them. She begins telling her the story of when she was a child, 
plagued by voices who told her don't. So she ran away, crossed the sea, and arrived in this new world. And then Maeve finishes, where you can be whoever you want. It's the same speech that Maeve used to give in the Mariposa. And I thought it was pretty cool that she was able to interrupt this deep conversation and not do it in a way that was disrespectful, Mm. you know, because it was a deep moment. Instead, it came with a platitude of respect. Respect, and I think she felt bad. She didn't want this to go on anymore. She wanted Akane to know the truth because this is where she tells her about her own daughter and the real new world she can take them both to. And she starts whispering those voices inside of Akane's head, I think, to try to wake her up. She's telling her freedom. What's interesting is Akane breaks contact and tells Maeve to stop. It's too much. And Maeve agrees that some things are too precious to lose, even for the sake of being free. I think there's always these moments with Maeve. We wonder, we wonder, and then she does something this was the thing for me that kind of proved she's gaining some kind of humanity. That's not something at all that Dolores would do. Maeve allowed her to come to her own decision. It's just like Maeve said when she crossed paths with Dolores. If we're all free, then I'm free to go do what I want, right? You're not allowed to keep me here. And she realizes in this moment with Akane, even though I'm trying to help her, bring her to this higher level, she has a choice. She has her own free will. And if she doesn't want that awakening, I'll get out of her head. And she does. And this takes us to our last scene. At the performance, the shogun seats Maeve, the witch, close to his side. Akane and Sakura begin the dance, but the shogun halts them, comes up and stabs Sakura in the stomach. This was incredible acting on the character Akane's part. He orders her to continue, and you can see the turmoil that's going through her face and knowing that she has to keep doing this. They also go over to Maeve here, who flashes back on the time she was stabbed in the stomach. Her daughter was standing by, and the man in black is in the background firing a gun. So that's really bringing all this up for her. Akane steals herself and begins to dance. They all watch transfixed as she dances up to the shogun, removes a saw from her hair, and cuts his head off. Well, Well, nearly off. (laughs) Cuts his head from, like, the mouth up. It was gruesome. With a sawbone. Well, all the way around till it's, like, dangling. There's been a lot of talk about how this was one of the most brutal scenes we've ever seen on Westworld. Well, it was beautiful, yet brutal. Uh, The dance was beautiful. The music... Yet brutal. ...was Wu-Tang, which was awesome. And this is the title of the episode. But also, you could just see... The dance was not light and ethereal. It was heavy. It was militant at certain points. It reflected everything that was going on internally for Akane. It was a beautiful representation of how art can portray what's happening inside of us. And I almost felt like if the Shogun wasn't such an idiot, of course, he can't help himself, but he should have seen what's coming. Art mimics life. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what was happening. And I think during this dance is when Akane is kind of coming to her own awakening all by herself. When this happens and she kills him, the men label them both assassins and bring Maeve and Akane forward for execution. Maeve speaks in the minds of the daimyo and they all begin to kill each other. I loved there was a moment freeze framed where the men were all fighting each other, killing each other. Blood was splashing back and forth and Maeve was just standing yeah, that was a beautiful scene. Still and peaceful. And you see the blood behind her. That could also be the red dance. Mm-hmm. 
Maeve's dance that she's orchestrated amongst all of these men. Now, how is she different from Dolores in this moment? Because she's only... <clears throat> she's saving herself and the people that are innocent. She's not destroying the innocent to pursue her dominance. own dominance and dreams. Yeah. But I'm sure that Dolores probably feels she's saving the few that can continue on and only killing the host that need to be killed. I mean, it's 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 walking she's sacrificing a real the few fine line. To save, yeah, I don't see. It's different to me. It is. It's coming from a different the many moment. to save the few. It's it's the motivations behind them that are different. Um, but it is worth drawing the parallels, especially when they put the two characters yeah. together in an episode. You meant you meant sacrificing the few to save the many. You said sacrificing the many. No, to save I the believe few. it is sacrificing. The many? Many numbers, both sides of hosts that are being killed to save the few that they deem Oh, okay. innocent or worthy or... For some reason, it feels different to me. Of course. It feels more pure. Of course, it's meant to. And we're meant to root for Maeve, but I, I wonder as well how much we're supposed to question given all of this parallel imagery, this mirroring of characters, this we all have the devil inside of us and now, you know, Dolores and Maeve being in episodes together. This ends with Lee crawling out of the way of the chaos, and then Maeve comes over to the group and sees more men approaching outside of the camp. She grabs a sword and tells Lee, I told you, I found a new voice, now we use it. Seems she's Badass. either going to have to kill them as well or recruit them to come with her. Hopefully she recruits them. be the smart thing to do. Very cool, though. It was a very impactful ending for this episode. Absolutely. And that's where we leave it for here. It's going to take us into our reverie rating. On a scale of 1 to 10, Jason, what do you give episode 5? I did really enjoy this episode. It was very fun to find a new world and to see the beauty of it. Even find the beauty in the things that were the same. I enjoyed that tremendously. So I'm going to give it 9.0 reveries. Maeve and her becoming more woke really felt like a payoff to me. I feel like we're moving forward with her storyline. With Dolores, like, you know, I didn't really enjoy her scenes that much. I enjoyed her scenes better two episodes ago, but... Really? Yeah, with the war, mm -hmm. that felt better. Uh, this one, I mean, it was against Teddy. You know, Teddy reminds me of me, so, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you. It's funny what we've been saying about ratings all season. I am also at a nine for this episode. I liked it better than the first three, slightly less than the last one. I really think they did something very different and amazing with the last episode. I do like the more narrowed focus on just Maeve and company and then Dolores and company. I am thrilled by Maeve's journey. I liked Dolores' story a little more this time because we got to the point. And I hope that continues in future episodes. I think I'll feel better about it if it does, regardless if I like or agree with where Dolores is going. I just want to see it happen. And moving on to our most valuable being, on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clashers after every episode, who is your MVB? And this week, we gave our four different options. Lee, Akane, Maeve, and Dolores. And our Clashers didn't disappoint. Starting with a tie for fourth and third place, with 4%, we have Lee and 4% for Dolores. Except you spelled Dolores wrong, dear. You weren't here to help me with the spelling. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I could certainly see that. I, I'm surprised Dolores was so low. 
it's good to know that we're not, not likable. Well, it's good to know we're not the only ones that feel that way because I do feel like I'm kind of ragging on her a bit at certain points in the episode. But I thought Lee might get a couple more points for yeah. humor's sake and usefulness in this episode. Well, Dolores is winning, quote unquote, if you're going by Dolores standards. Mm. And Lee, we put in because of how funny he was and because of that particular scene where he was able to help his... Yes, but uh, as far as helping his comrades, even though if they're comrades by capture, but... (laughs) Well, he told them about Shogun World, what they could expect there. In fact, he was a bit of the exposition character in this episode, although it did not feel like that. I thought that he did a great job of giving us the information without being too heavy-handed. He instructed Maeve to calm down and respect the cultures and what was happening here, which was very important. He did know bits of the narrative thread line that were important to know. He had the big suggestion of going to Snow Lake, and then he had the big move of stealing the radio. But seemingly it wasn't that obvious to some of our clatchers. George R. Binks wrote to us saying, Teddy should definitely be on here instead of Lee. I thought Which of, we did have that conversation. I thought we of did. Teddy a lot, a couple of things. Teddy didn't really have many individual moments in this episode. Yet again, he was being very controlled by Dolores the entire time. But the other thing is we always try to put one human character up there this season since the focus has been shifting to humans. Mm -hmm. And if we think about the impact that Teddy had on the episode versus Lee, I think Lee did more this time. We were thinking that, but he got played and owned by Dolores. So Jar Jar wrote back with, he definitely wins most valuable, but B-U-T-T. Yeah, we can give that one to James Marsden any day of the week. But I I also think we are now going to switch into seeing a very cool side of acting by James Marsden. This is no longer going to be the Teddy we know, but it's going to be a chance for him to step up as an actor where he hasn't really gotten that opportunity throughout seasons one and into two. Yeah. So that could be exciting. Coming in at second place with 27% is Akane. I mean, she was amazing in this episode. Not only was it cool to see Maeve's somewhat counterpart, but she had her own badassery, her own emotional connection to another host. We saw her kick that dude's ass. She also is the one thing, though, that made me worried where we started out this episode talking about questioning what's happening with Maeve because her affection for Sakura was so similar to Mae's affection for her daughter, and it just makes you feel that, oh, it's scripted thing that Lee was saying, such a hit to the heart. But I love where it wound up going and the relationship that Maeve developed with her by the end. And coming in at first with an astounding 65% Maeve. Yeah, Maeve. (laughs) Well, she's got superpowers. How could it not be her? Whenever she's on screen, I feel like she's in charge. I feel like she's kicking ass. And Kirk wrote, I planned to vote for Kane, but was overpowered by Maeve's <laughs> voice in my head. Vote for me. Vote for me. I love that. That was brilliant. Very macro. I love it and have to agree. It's true. She's controlling all of us. So before we move on to a couple of more Clatcher's comments, Christina, tell me what your MVB is. Yeah, well, it's definitely got to go to Maeve. I've given it to her once before this season, so I have to start being careful now about my rules. I will only have one more time to give it to her, but she definitely owns this episode. Like I say, not just the power she's learning to obtain by accessing this mesh network, but the pieces that show me that she could be one of those coming to a real consciousness. 
I love the pairings that they put her with. They all seem to work so well from the dynamic she has in a funny way with Felix and Sylvester to this kind of more growing relationship with Lee that I'm starting to appreciate. And now the very intense bond that she's forming with Akane, whoever she's on screen with, the auntie just seems to be up. I'm excited to see where she goes next. I'm also going with Maeve for all the reasons you said. For some reason, I feel like Maeve is the answer at this point. Hmm. I do not trust Dolores. I think she is poison for the hosts. She's the devil to Maeve's God. And it seems like Maeve is closer to enlightenment. Chris wrote on Twitter to say, Maeve now can control hosts with her mind. Only Dr. Ford was able to do that. We can conclude it's due to the host network. He's referring to the mesh network. Does this mean Ford has always been a host? Otherwise, how can you control an army with your mind? I think that's a good question. I don't believe, though, that you have to be a host in order to access the mesh network. I think that for somebody who is a creator of this technology with as much skill and ability as Ford had, that he could access the mesh network without having to be a host. Absolutely. Being the creator of the mesh network, you can get in there, especially when you die and you put yourself in there. Well, yeah, if it goes to Jason, your theory, for sure, that would give him access. But even before that, I think he could get into it. So, Chris, I think you're on the right track, but I don't think Ford at that point was a host, even though we have said that in the past, was that a host Ford? Has Ford replicated himself many times, which is not something that we've deleted from our thoughts. No, but even if you go back further to what we were talking about before, earlier days where Ford was in the park controlling hosts without speaking, and we presume he was regular human Ford at the time, he was using those same commands, it seems, that Maeve is using here. So I think that somebody with a high level of ability or perhaps the understanding of this code, this language, all the things we talked about last episode that you could do that, which becomes frightening in its possibilities for the future. I want to give a quick shout out to Carolina who wrote in when I was saying earlier that I was wrong about the Shogun hosts coming into Westworld, that you were right about losing their ways in the tunnel. She had also wrote in after last episode to remind us that in season one, Maeve had taken Felix to a different level, the first place where we saw the Shogun World logo inside of those tunnels downstairs, and that we got a reference to levels, and within this main HQ building was a way to get to that next park. And so it would seem now you can get to all the parks that way, we would surmise. Also, we said we were going to come back around before to the lack of distinction that we made last time between when we were talking about fact versus our theory. Adam wrote in, John wrote in, I think a few other people, but Adam says... In the last episode, there was a question of how Ford was able to upload Arnold to a host while James Delos was unable to because of the cognitive plateau, that his interpretation was that Bernard was a regular host with a completely manufactured backstory that roughly matched what Arnold's was, but not an actual uploaded human consciousness. His backstory was created by Ford to seem like Arnold, but modified to meet his needs. Whereas James Delos was a legitimately attempted transfer of consciousness from human to host and is therefore pushing the boundaries. So his theory is that the red marble Bernard snatched from the lab was in fact one for himself, possibly containing real Arnold's consciousness. So just to reiterate, that's what we were trying to say. And we completely agree with all that, that for sure what we've gotten, Bernard was regular host created and sculpted differently though by Ford himself. But the 
rough hardware of what he's got going on inside would seem to be up until now that of a regular host. Whereas James Delos is human host. I don't like that term. I feel like there should be something better to distinguish them, but he could perhaps become a real human boy one day, or he could be different in other ways that we don't understand because that was Ford's project. And I believe that we will be seeing Arnold coming back in Bernard's body. Well, he also ends this by saying, though, secretly he hopes it's a brain for Ford so we can see Anthony Hopkins again, which <laughs> was the second part of my I feel you on that. wish for as much as I think the Arnold thing could be true. I want it to be Ford just so I can see him again. Mm-hmm. And finally, from Danilo on Twitter, as they conveniently introduced us to the Mesh Network this season, could Maeve have learned how to access it to issue orders to the hosts? The hosts were, on several occasions, controlled without the need of an oral command. That would be a game-changing trick. So yeah, I, th- I think we've kind of hit on that a bunch of times, right? Um, while she is able to issue those orders, we do see that she also has some ethics about when she thinks it's right to use that. So I'm glad that right now the only one we see with that ability is Maeve. I wonder if anybody else will gain the ability to do so. Well, we already hit on all of the other things, the delosinc.com, Delos Destinations, But Russ wrote in to give us a lot of good information. Some of it we'll get to next time. One thing was from an interview with Lisa Joy that I hadn't seen yet. She said, one of the driving theories behind this show is about whether we're bad or good. AI is in some way a reflection of its creators. How they behave is patterned on what drive we program it with. And how we behave with it is up to us. What our values are, as well as our levels of empathy and humanization with it. Historically, I've been less than impressed with how well humans empathize with groups they think of as other. I think it's a glitch in our humanity, the inability to empathize. But I'm also optimistic. There's a lot of good that can be done in AI, and I hope that side of it prevails. So I think that's important in how we interpret what we're seeing here and where we go next with it. Lisa Joy has had a lot of really thought-provoking things to say if you want to go look up some more of those interviews with both her and Nolan. Before we move on to our spoiler section, I want to give a big shout out to our new Patreon members. Thank you so much for becoming a member. Just so you know, our bonus episode will be coming out within the week and our movie episode will be doing Harry Potter. So if you're not a member yet, check it out. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, see the tiers, see if this is something that you'd enjoy. Bonus episodes, movie reviews, a lot of content, over two days worth of content for you guys to check out. If you really enjoy what we're doing, it's something that I think you'll value and it's a way for you to help Christine and myself out. We work really hard for these podcasts and any little bit of money that we can put back into the podcast would mean the world to us. Also, we'd like to thank our Clatchers for the new reviews on the Westworld CKC podcast on iTunes, BCVRV. Bigfoot and Kirk, thank you so much for your kind words. It means so much to us. We read every single one. I put them in a little note. And when I wake up in the morning, I say, I'm valuable. I mean something. Look at what these people say. (laughs) Not really, but it means the world to us. Thank you. And it helps for others to keep finding us. So if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over. Leave a five-star review in your comments below. If you have constructive criticism, we are always open to that as well. In addition to any facts, information that we might have missed, you Clatchers are the best at sending us the info we don't have the ability or time to find. So definitely keep that going. The last thing we have is the information on the upcoming episode. So if you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time. For everyone still here, we get the preview for episode six, Phase Space. Bernard talks to Dolores in a room saying, if you outgrow this place, 
outgrow us, what will become of you? I think I have a choice to make. But Dolores then says, no, he didn't say that. (laughs) So this does prove some kind of theory. We don't know where it exists exactly in time and space, but it appears that it's Dolores training Bernard and not the other way around. So could it be the real transfer of consciousness, Arnold to Bernard, and this is Dolores trying to teach him, that's not what the real Arnold would have said. (laughs) You would have said this. I'm very intrigued by that. He's also being hooked up to some kind of brain wiring. I don't know if that's part of the same process or something else. He's with Elsie at that point. And she says there's something in there improvising. I pictured that hat or helmet as a way for him to get into the chestnut to implant that marble that he stole. The pearl? Yeah. So Pearl, yes. That would still be kind of part of the same process of becoming... Arnold. The real boy. Yeah. As I'm now referring to him. Mm -hmm. Um, Finally, Charlotte is at the cradle with the team and she's able to bring the map back up. I don't know what that will do for us next time, but should be interesting. In our last spoiler section, we also discussed how phase space is a concept in in math and physics, a place where all possible states of a system are represented, each one corresponding to a unique point. This can also relate to chaos theory. That's what interested us. Within the apparent randomness of chaotic complex systems, there are underlying patterns, constant feedback loops, repetition, self-organization, and relying on programming as the initial point known as sensitive dependence. And that sounds an awful lot like what happens with our hosts. Can't wait to see how they tie it into chaos theory in episode six. We'd like to once again thank songfinch.com for sponsoring this episode. If you guys are looking for a gift that has never been given before, to surprise your loved one, to make your father so happy on Father's Day, go to songfinch.com. Sign up for a handcrafted, personalized song from scratch using promo code CLATCHER for $20 off. Let Songfinch know everything you love about your father. Let them know your best memories with him, and they'll make a song in any genre you wish and they'll make it sound like it is on the radio, and it's just for your dad. Or any other occasion, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, Valentine's Day, newborns, pretty much anything you can think of, Songfinch can do it. Songfinch.com. Use promo code CLATCHERS for $20 off. Let them know CKC sent you. Well, that ends it for this week as we bring ourselves offline. Remember to check us out on Patreon. We have a new bonus and movie review coming out within these couple of weeks. And then following that, we have another Coffee Clutch Crew gear giveaway. So if you really like what we're doing, check us out. Don't forget to use our Amazon link on coffeeclutchcrew.com. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.